continue now with the Maha Gosinga Sutta, which is the greater or longer discourse in Gosinga. Now is the name of the forest in which this sutta takes place. And on the occasion of this sutta, a number of very prominent great disciples of the Buddha have been dwelling together in this forest, living a very <coughs> meditative life. And then one full night when the might I'm sorry, one night when the moon is very bright, illumining the entire forest, all of these monks gather together for a Dhamma discussion. And <coughs> Venerable Sariputta brings up the topic of discussion by pointing out the beauty of the forest and the splendor of the moonlight. And he asks, what kind of monk could illuminate the, or beautify this Gosinga solitary forest? Then the first one to respond is Venerable Ananda. And last week we discussed his answer. And as we saw, each of the monks will reply according to his own conception, his own intuitive sense of the ideal bhikkhu. Okay, so now we come to the next, the next one to speak. This is a monk called Ravata, Venerable Ravata. <coughs> and so Venerable Sari, this is in paragraph 5 of the Sutta. Venerable Sariputta turns to the Venerable Ravata and says, Friend Ravata, the Venerable Ananda has spoken according to his own ideal. Actually, the word here that we rendered ideal, it's not completely, I say, it's, it's not an ideal rendering of the Pali word. The Pali word is patibana, which means, there's just no simple English word which corresponds to it. Patibana, with the idea would be rendered something like, as it dawns upon him. The word bana means illumination or light. And pati is like an inward reflection of light. So when somebody, for example, has a very say, keen ability in speaking to get sudden flashes of intuition and he's skilled in spontaneously devising similes, analogies, or spontaneously able when speaking to just take any subject that's presented to him and analyze it into great detail. This is referred to as the capacity, this capacity is referred to as patibana. Perhaps one might render it as ingenuity. Anyway, in this context, I thought the best way to render it was as ideal, according to his own ideal. Though the word, the original Pali word, has other implications which just can't be captured in English. 
you might say that Venerable Ananda has spoken according to just the way it spontaneously, the idea spontaneously occurred to him. Okay, so then Sariputta turns to the Venerable Revata and also points out the beauty of the forest and the splendor of the moonlight and the trees are all in blossom and the scent of the flowers is floating through the air and he says what kind of monk friend Revata could illuminate this solitary forest now Venerable Revata was appointed by the Buddha when the Buddha assigned different disciples to the category of chief disciples in particular fields of specialty. He assigned Venerable Revata to the category of the bhikkhu disciple who was foremost among meditators, among the Pali word is jayino, those who were jayinam those who are devoted to the practice of meditation. I think this doesn't mean that Venerable Revita was the most accomplished meditator amongst all the disciples. Perhaps that capacity would go to maybe Venerable Sariputta, Mahamogalana, and Mahakasapa. But because those monks excelled in other fields, they were not appointed to the position of the most outstanding meditator. Otherwise they would have accumulated too many honors and it would have excluded other monks. But the Venerable Revita was a very quiet monk who's not known for any famous discourses. I don't think he appears very often at all in the canon. But he was very fond of dwelling in remote, secluded forests and practicing solitary meditation. And so on this occasion when he was asked what kind of monk could illuminate this solitary forest, he says, Here a bhikkhu delights in solitary meditation and takes delight in solitary meditation. He is devoted to internal serenity of mind. In Pali, this would be ajatang cheto samatang. That would be samatha practice, samatha meditation, the practice of tranquility meditation. He does not neglect <coughs> meditation or jhana. He possesses insight, vidashana, vipassana, and he dwells in empty hut. That kind of bhikkhu could illuminate this Gosinga solitary wood. Okay, there's not very much that requires explanation in this, this answer. And there's not very much information recorded about Venerable Revita, so I don't know <laughs> interesting stories to relate about him. Okay, so we'll go on. Uh, Sariputta repeats the same thing that he said in the case of Ananda, that Venerable Revita has spoken according to his own ideal. And now he turns to the Buddha's cousin, 
Venerable Anuruddha, who is a member of the Sakyan clan from the city of Kapalabhattu, a relation of the Buddha. And he says, Friend Anuruddha, this Gosinga solitary forest is delightful and so on. What kind of bhikkhu, friend Anuruddha, could illuminate this Gosinga solitary wood? And Anuruddha replies that here, with the divine eye which is purified and surpasses the human, a bhikkhu surveys a thousand worlds. Just as a man with good sight, when he has ascended to the upper palace chamber, might survey a thousand wheel rooms, so too with the divine eye which is purified and surpasses the human, a bhikkhu surveys a thousand worlds. That kind of bhikkhu could illuminate this Gosinga solitary wood. Okay, now Anuruddha was the disciple who was the most outstanding in the exercise of this faculty called the Divine Eye. I explained that briefly in connection with the previous sutta, which also in which Anuruddha also played a prominent part. But I'll just briefly repeat the, the explanation. The Buddha speaks of certain special faculties or powers of knowledge which become accessible to those who achieve mastery over the mind through the practice of jhana meditation the practice of samatha, serenity meditation. These special faculties of knowledge are called abhinyas. So if a meditator is able to get very thorough mastery over the four jhanas on the basis of that concentration in the jhanas he can then direct his attention or his faculty of knowledge to certain special higher types of knowledge which include the ability to exercise psychic powers the divine ear element by which one can hear sounds at a great distance. Third is the ability to read the minds of others. Then fourth is the recollection of previous lives so that one can turn the attention back and recollect one, one's previous existences. And fifth, is the Divine Eye. The Divine Eye is the power to turn one's attention to events that might be occurring at great distances from one's present position. 
and one will be able to see with one's mind, with one, one's mind's eye, what is happening at a great distance. Maybe these powers don't seem believable to some of us who have been brought up with a very hard empirical scientific education but in fact the powers of the mind are extremely great and the reason why people are not able to exercise these powers is because they have not developed their mind to the extent necessary the Buddha does not especially encourage the development of these powers of knowledge just for the purpose of performing, say, spiritual jugglery, spiritual acrobatics. But in the case of certain disciples who have a disposition towards these knowledges, they can be helpful both for increasing their own understanding of, you can say, the cosmic process, and also they can be utilized effectively out of compassion for others in order to benefit others and to lead others onto the path of Dhamma. The Buddha, however, has prohibited monks or nuns who develop these powers from exhibiting them to others openly and also even from claiming to people who are not ordained that they possess such powers. But if one develops these powers and uses them privately, then they could enhance one's own, say, spiritual understanding and can also be used discreetly to benefit others. Now the divine eye, as I said, is the ability to know events that are happening at a great distance. And the way this is developed and I'm just speaking on the basis of the explanations and the text, not from <laughs> implying that I have personal experience of this. When the meditator masters the fourth jhana, then he uses as the object of concentration a disk of light. It's called the light casina. And he focuses the mind on that light and directs that light over a particular area outwardly so that it would illuminate a particular area. Then he tries to extend that light further and further to regions that are beyond, outside the sphere of immediate physical vision until that light will illuminate more distant regions. And within his mind's eye, he will be able to see within that light events that are taking place. If he just has a rather limited mastery over the jhana, then the ability, the ability to extend the light will be lim correspondingly limited, and so his divine vision will be limited. But taking somebody like Anuruddha, who has absolute mastery over this faculty, he will extend this light over greater and greater areas till it might, if he's sitting in, say, 
northern India. He might extend it so that it extends over all of India. And then by turning his attention to that light, he'll be able to see events taking place even in distant parts of India, from sitting in in the Ganges Valley, he might be able to see what is happening in South India, in Sri Lanka, maybe Burma, Pakistan. By extending the light even further and further, he could see what is happening all over this planet. But this is still only a fraction of the skill of somebody like Anuruta, who has the ability to know what is happening not only on this particular planet, but throughout this entire world system, and even to encompass many world systems. Anuruddha says he can survey a thousand worlds. According to the ancient Buddhist texts, the physical universe does not consist only of one particular solar system with the earth at the center, a few planets, well, a few planets and one sun, but there are many, many world systems spread out through boundless space. World systems which are organized quite similar to our own. Each of these is called in Pali a chakavala, which literally it would be translated a wheel of worlds. And sort of a matter of dispute whether the chakavala would correspond to our solar system or to our galaxy. But anyway, <laughs> somebody with this ability, this power of the divine eye will be able to extend that light so that it, it encompasses a thousand chakavalas, a thousand world systems, wheels of worlds, and be able to see all the events taking place within those world systems. And Anuruddha uses an analogy. He says that it's just as if a man with good sight were to go up to the upper palace chamber, the upper chamber of his palace, and might survey a thousand wheel rooms. I think a, a wheel room was a way in which the farmers of the period would design their fields for cultivation. They would divide them up into certain plots of land which were called wheel rooms conventionally. And so if somebody were to go up to the high top floor of a big building and luck around in the countryside, we'd be able to see in all directions the fields divided into these wheel-like divisions. And so a yogi who has mastered the divine eye will just be able to cast his vision out upon the universe and in the same way they will come into the field of his divine eye, his spiritual vision. All of these many world systems 
and perhaps in very great detail, with great precision of perception, he'll be able to see events taking place in these different worlds. And so Anuruddha says that a monk like this could illuminate this forest. Okay, then Sariputta sort of applauds his words by saying that he turns to Venerable Mahakasapa and says, Friend Kasapa, the Venerable Anuruddha has spoken according to his own ideal. Now we ask the Venerable Mahakasapa, Friend Kasapa, the Gosinga solitary forest, the wood is delightful, and so on. What kind of monk could illuminate this Gosinga solitary forest? Now we'll say, give a little background on the Venerable Maha Kasapa, who is one of the very most distinguished disciples of the Buddha, and in fact the disciple who after the Buddha's passing away became the de facto president of the first Buddhist council at which the Buddha scriptures were collected. And he became, in a way, the informal leader of the Sangha, even though the Buddha did not appoint a specific head, but he became regarded as, I think, the foremost authority. Mahakasapa had been born in near Rajagriha, he had been born into a very wealthy Brahmin family. And when, through his early life, he had a very, very strong inclination to a life of renunciation, to leave the worldly life and become an ascetic. But his parents, being strict Brahmins, and also being very wealthy, they wanted to continue the family lineage and they also wanted their wealth to pass on to their son. And so they urged him very strongly to marry and they told him that they would arrange a marriage for him. That was the tradition in Indian society at that time. But the young Kasapa, at that time he was named Pipali, was very insistent on leaving the worldly life. And so he tried to play a trick on his parents by having, from the family gold, he had a statue made by some artisans, according to his own directions, of a girl who was so exquisitely beautiful that it seemed that it would be absolutely impossible for anybody to find a girl like that. And he told his parents, if you can find me a girl like this, I'll marry her. (laughs) If you can't, then you have to allow me to leave the worldly life. And the parents agreed on that wager. (laughs) And so they set, set out searching for such a girl, going from town to town to village to village, but they just couldn't find any girl who was so beautiful. However, there was such a girl. 
who had been associated with Pipali in many, many previous lives under previous Buddhas following the Dhamma. And because they were so closely associated through many previous lives, it was their karmic destiny to come together as husband and wife in this life. But she too had been extremely keen, even from her youth, on leading a renunciant life. And so when the parents of Pipali were searching from village to village, eventually they came upon a, <laughs> a girl who looked exactly <laughs> like the girl in the golden statue that had been made by uh, the artisans com commissioned by Pipali. And so then they brought her to the home and they showed her to their son and said, now you have to agree to the marriage. Both of them tried to wiggle out of the marriage, but the parents on both sides insisted on it, and so they were married. However, they were both so intent on leading a renunciate life that on the marriage night, the wedding night, they did not consummate the marriage, and they never did. They just continued to lead austere, celibate lives while living within the same house. <clears throat> then one day when Pipali was examining his workers as they were plowing the fields he saw them digging with the plow they were digging up the earth and he saw that many worms were being exposed to the surface of the earth and birds were coming taking the worms and eating them. And he was greatly agitated by this. And he asked his workers, I don't know why he would ask the workers this, but he asked them, who bears the responsibility, the karmic responsibility, for the death of the worms? And they said that you, you're the master of the fields, so you're the one who bears the responsibility for this. In a way, this doesn't really accord with the Buddha's teaching on karma, which is that intention is the factor of karma. But anyway, they might have had this wrong view, and people just accepted this and was d deeply disturbed by it. Then, just about the same time, his wife, Buddha, Buddha was her name, was examining her lady workers as they were I think spreading some seeds on mats to dry in the sun. And there were some little insects which would come to try to nibble on the seeds, and then birds would come and eat those insects. And she was greatly agitated by this, and she asked her servants who is responsible for the death of the insects. And they said that since the seeds belong to the mistress of the house, you're the one who is responsible. <laughs> and so this greatly made her mind greatly disturbed. And so both of them, right on the spot, agreed that they would not remain any longer in the household life. And so one day, or the next day, I think, they each shaved each other's head and they took pieces of cloth 
had them dyed yellow and while everybody was working, all the servants were working in the field, they went out and told all of the servants, you are now free, you can do whatever you want. All of this property you just divide amongst yourselves, we're leaving. Then they went wandering or walking together along a road in, in the vicinity of, of Rajagaha, walking some distance, when they began to think that it would not really look proper for them, a man and a woman wearing the clothes of ascetics, to be traveling together. Uh, and I, I should mention that when they went forth like this as ascetics, they did not yet have any knowledge of the Buddha or any knowledge of Buddhism, but they just went forth thinking that they were taking what is called the Rishi Papaja, that's the self-ordination of the sages. And so they walked together some distance and it occurred to them that if people saw them walking together and if they were to continue to live together as ascetics, people will say, ah, these are just phonies and hypocrites. They, they want to show people that they're living austere lives of renunciation, but they can't even separate from each other. And so as they walked, they came to a crossroad, and Mahakasapa said, or Pipali said, I will take one side, one road, you take the other, and we'll go our separate, way, separate ways. And when this happened, according to the traditional account, a great sort of mass of spiritual power arose and caused the earth to quake. I mean, maybe ordinary people will not detect an earthquake, but from, I think, those with spiritual vision or spiritual sensitivity would have realized that some event of great importance was taking place. <coughs> and so they parted ways and peopley continued walking along the road that he took. And when the earth shook, then the Buddha, in his meditation, experienced the quaking of the earth and realized that some important event was about to take place. And he directed his own divine eye some distance and saw that his future great disciple, Mahakasapa, was coming in his direction. And so he left the monastery and went some distance along the road Towards which, along which Mahakaspa was walking and went to a tree and sat down cross-legged in meditation at the foot of a tree. And as Kasapa proceeded along that road, he saw the Buddha sitting under the tree. And immediately he was able to discern that this is not just an ordinary recluse, but that this is his master. And so he came up to the Buddha and immediately bowed down to him and said, you are my master, I am your disciple. You are my master. Three times he said this, I am your disciple. 
Then the Buddha said to him, He said, if a recluse, an ascetic, who is not a fully enlightened one, were to accept your bow without refusing it, his head would split. That is because he, Kasapa has already such great spiritual earnestness, such deep purity, that if a teacher who is not an enlightened one were to pose as an enlightened one just to receive, to take on a disciple of such great qualities, then it would be an act of deception, of spiritual theft that would be so severe that he would just die on the spot. But the Buddha says, I can tell you that I am an enlightened one, that I have seen the truth. Then he gave Kasapa an instruction with three points, three points in the instruction. I have, to make, I have to make sure not to make the same mistake that I did last week. <laughs> okay, he said, first, you should be very humble towards all the other monks who have been ordained longer than you and always be very respectful towards them. Don't think that because you have such great spiritual qualities accumulated through many lives that therefore you should lord it over others. Okay, second, whenever you hear any teaching on the good Dhamma, you should always listen to it very keenly and intently, applying your whole mind to understand it. And thirdly, you should dwell constantly with mindfulness applied to the body. Abide thus joyfully applying mindfulness to the body. Then Mahakasapa accepted this advice from the Buddha and he dwelt after receiving some instructions and guidance and meditation from the Buddha. He practiced for seven days and after seven days he reached Arhatship. Then he continued walking with the Buddha towards the monastery. There seems to be some lasuna some gap in the sequence of events which is hard to fit together. What, have, what was the Buddha doing during these seven days? But anyway, in the traditional account, they continued walking towards the monastery and the Buddha was a little tired and wanted to sit down. And Mahakasapa took his cloak, his patched up cloak, and folded it into several fourfold and put it down for the Buddha to sit down on so the Buddha would sit comfortably. And the Buddha sat down on that robe and he felt the robe and he said that this is very comfortable, this robe. Then Mahakasapa insisted, in that case, you take this robe, let me give this robe to you. Then the Buddha realized that 
if he were to accept the robe, that Mahakasapa would be without his outer robe. And so the Buddha then said, and this was an extremely important statement, he said, will you wear my stitched up, worn, old robe? And Mahakasapa said, yes, I will accept it. And so in that way, even though Mahakasapa had been a disciple only seven days, the Buddha exchanged robes with him. And I think that's the only time in the Buddha's life that he ever actually exchanged robes with any other monk. So that was a kind of symbolic way, I think, of showing that in the future, Kasapa would play an extremely vital role in the history of the sasana. Okay, so then after this, Kasapa continued to dwell sometimes together with the Buddha, and very often he would dwell apart from the Buddha, living in seclusion under very austere, very austere condition. And so Mahakasapa eventually became appointed by the Buddha as the disciple who was preeminent in the practice of the ascetic qualities, what are called the Dutangas. And it's these particular qualities, amongst other things, that Mahakasapa highlights in his reply to the question in this sutta. Okay, now I'll, I'll read the reply of Mahakasapa, then I will elaborate upon it. It says, Here, friend Sariputta, a bhikkhu is a forest dweller himself and speaks and prays of forest dwelling. He is an alms food eater himself and speaks in praise of eating alms food. He is a refuse rag wearer himself and speaks in praise of wearing refuse rag robes. He is a triple robe wearer himself and speaks in praise of wearing the triple robe. Okay, maybe I'll stop at this point and explain these points that he makes. <coughs> okay, now when the Buddha was still a bodhisattva and was striving for enlightenment, as we all know, he adopted this practice of what is called Atakila Matanu Yoga, self-mortification, which he followed for very rigorously for six years reducing his intake of food, going naked, exposing his body to the heat and cold, because he believed that at that time that this was the method for reaching deliverance, liberation. Later, when he failed in his practice of asceticism, when he could not reach any higher realization, he rejected that extreme type of self-mortification in order to adopt the middle way, which involves looking after the body to maintain the body in a state of health while directing one's attention to the cultivation 
of the mind through developing virtue, concentration, and wisdom. And so the Buddha did not incorporate into his teaching the practices of self-mortification. However, he himself followed for various periods after his enlightenment and allowed for his disciples certain practices of austerity which are called in Pali Dutanga. I'll write that word. Yeah, the most common name that's used in the Visuddhimagga is Dutanga. So in the suttas, I think they're called Dutaguna. The word Dutta means, the, the phrase is usually translated the ascetic practices or the ascetic virtues. The word Dutta actually literally means shaking off and the Dutangas are special, austere practices which are adopted generally for the purpose of, you can say, shaking off the defilements or strengthening, reinforcing certain inner virtues which are conducive to the strengthening of the meditative life. It, the, these practices strengthen the virtues of being content with little, content with whatever one gets. They lead to being easy to support, to equanimity in the face of changing circumstances, gain or loss, pleasure or pain. They lead to a very simple way of life and they conduce to contentment with anything. In the Visuddhimagga, 13 of these qualities or practices are mentioned. But here we only have one, two, three, four of them mentioned, which is perhaps enough. Okay, now the Buddha has allowed monks to live either in the forests, if they want, or in towns or cities. And so, in the case of the Buddha, his rich supporters in Savati, Rajagriha, Vesali, would build for him monasteries inside the town, or very close to the town, and he and the order of monks would dwell within these monasteries right on the outskirts of the towns. And this was allowable because it was in no way a violation of any moral principles and it would bring benefit for the disciples who were living in the town. But the Buddha allowed those monks who were very strongly inclined to the life of meditation to make a vow or resolution not to dwell in any monastery in a town or city. They make a fixed determination always to dwell outside towns or cities, to live only in the forest. So that is the practice of a forest dweller. Some monks will take that as a matter of a fixed vow which they will not 
modify or compromise under any circumstances except maybe poor health where they have to take medical treatment. And so they will resolve only to live in the forest, never to spend a night in a town or city. <laughs> Nowadays this is getting harder and harder to observe as there get to be more and more towns and less and less forests. Okay, but other monks will not form any such fixed vow so that if circumstances require it, they will live temporarily in a town or city. But whenever they have the opportunity, they will resort to the forest. And so those two can be called forest dwellers. Okay, the next ascetic practice. Yeah, I should also mention that along with the forest dwellers practice, there are some other dutangas that also relate to the choice of a dwelling place. Another one, even more austere than li simply living in the forest, is always to live at the foot of a tree. Somebody who is just an ordinary forest dweller can have a little kuti or hut made for him in the forest, or he can choose a cave and he'll live either in the hut or in the cave. But one who wants to practice in an even more austere way will choose only to live under a tree, the tree giving the shade and the shelter. Another vow regarding, regarding dwelling place, <laughs> this is a somewhat frightful one for ordinary people, is to dwell at night in a charnel ground, a place where bodies were cremated. This would really arouse a very strong sense of urgency as one sees you know, the bones and remains of cremated bodies all around. <laughs> a sort of Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.